a seat. It's good to see you this morning. I, I look around the room and I know we have a, a bunch of guests in the room. We had a bunch in the first service as well. Uh, for those of you that are guests, we're glad that you're here. We're studying through the book of Acts and we're in chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at 14 down to 21. Uh, we're looking at Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Just to give you a little context and to catch all of us up, uh, we started the book of Acts and we saw that Luke said from the very beginning that this is, in the Gospel of Luke, what uh, he wrote about all that Jesus did, all that Jesus accomplished, so the life and the work and the person of Jesus and all that he accomplished. The book of Acts is all that he continues to do through gospel-transformed believers. And so we've been studying through this at Passover. Jesus is God's lamb that God put forward. He is our substitutionary sacrifice. The crowds were there. Uh, the, Jesus is, 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 dies on the cross, and then he's raised from the grave. And then he appears to the disciples. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to numerous disciples and, and upwards of 500 at, at once. And so in these times of appearance, he tells the disciples to wait, to wait, to wait. Wait in Jerusalem, it says in the beginning of Acts, to stop going and coming, but to wait. And wait for what? Wait for the power Wait for the life. Wait for the very presence of God, the living God of the universe, to come and dwell within you and give you power to enable you to proclaim this radical good news to the nations. And they did, and they waited, and they waited 50 days, and 50 days later is the Feast of Passover or Pentecost. And Pentecost, also a pilgrimage feast, all the nations actually came to Jerusalem. And so the Spirit descends, God comes to dwell among his people, but he doesn't just come to dwell in their vicinity. He comes to dwell in their hearts. And immediately they, they're empowered and they begin to proclaim and they proclaim in multiple languages to all of these nations that are there at Jerusalem and, and on Pentecost. And that's where we pick up in our text today. And so when we see what happens there, they are amazed. They're shocked. Everyone is hearing in their own language. All these nations have come. They're all going to be dispersed and they're going to go and they're going to be proclaiming this good news that they hear today. Many will be saved, they'll be filled with the Spirit, and they will take it with them. But in this moment, they ask a question. In Acts chapter 2, verse 13, they say, All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? What are we witnessing? What are we seeing? What is this that we can hear the gospel being proclaimed in our own language all the way down, as we talked about, to the level of dialect? They hear y'all. They hear, they hear our language, they hear their language in their own dialect, and they're amazed. But there's another crowd. It says, others mocked, saying these men and women are drunk. But others mocked, saying they are all filled with new wine or sweet wine. And to that, we're told in verse 14, Peter stands up, which is a remarkable scene in and of itself and worth investigating, and then he begins to proclaim. Now, there's too much for us to cover all today in his sermon. His sermon runs from verse 14 all the way down to 40 that captures their response. And there's a lot in that text. So we're only going to look at the first part of what he begins to say. But just as an outline for what he says, we can look at this next slide and we can see this is the outline of Peter's sermon. One back, there you go. So initially what we're going to see this morning is he gives issues a strong warning and a call for repentance. And that in that call for repentance is also an invitation. And that's where he moves to invite them to call on Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, 
the rest of the text from 22 all the way down to 35, Peter is presenting the evidence for Jesus, that God sent Jesus, that God raised Jesus, that God exalted Jesus to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is the one who sent the Holy Spirit. And then he gets to these piercing, super convicting words, and you crucified him, and you killed him. And with that, they are cut to the heart. We'll, we'll see a little bit of that this morning in verse 37, their response. This morning, again, we're only going to focus on verses 14 to 21, and then we'll skip down and see their response. And in verses 14 and 21, we see Peter stands. And again, that's impressive. That's important for us to notice because it sits in the backdrop of what he proclaims. And he answers their objection and their question in verse 13. That's what he begins to do. And he does it by quoting one of the prophets. He quotes Joel. And there's a strong message there for us to see this morning. It's, it's both a warning and an invitation. And then it will begin to make much more sense why they respond the way they do and the language that's used in verse 37. They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. That's profound language. And that's real repentance. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's look first at, at Peter's stand. The fact that Peter is standing is just remarkable. He, he stands up. With the 11, he's standing with the 11, he lifted his voice and he addressed them. And he says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Dwell means to all who are residing temporarily, passing through. He's addressing the crowds. He's addressing the multitude. Luke tells us that the nations have come. The nations have come down and descended on Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place. And all of these nations were there. And he goes through this long list of nations. He's addressing the masses, the multitude. But he doesn't stay there. If you look at verse 22, he says, not just simply men of Judea and men who are those who are passing through Jerusalem, he says men of Israel. And then down in 29, he says brothers. What's he doing? The trajectory of his sermon, it moves from the masses, from the broad down to the person. It's almost like he gets down and he looks in their eyes. It's almost as though he's using their very names when he says brothers. It's intensely personal. So he's moving from the general to the very specific in the flow of the text. And then it says in, in verse uh, 14 here that he addressed them. And it's important for us to see that word. Addressed is the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 4, just a few verses before, when it says that when the Spirit descended, the presence of God descended, he came in to dwell, but he didn't just come in to dwell, he came in to dwell and he opened their lips and they began to proclaim. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Utterance is the same word in Greek as addressed. What that tells us when we see that in Peter he is not just simply speaking words off the cuff, like he has traditionally done. He's not just simply speaking whatever comes to mind across the lips. He's not speaking brashly or rashly. He's speaking the very words of the Spirit. The Spirit is directing his words, is directing and guiding what he's saying. This is Spirit-inspired speech that we're listening to here. This is a Spirit-given message that's proclaimed. Therefore, everyone should listen you and I included. This is important. This is important for us to see and what he's doing here. And what he says is, he opens with this, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. What's his goal? His goal is to be clear. What you're confused about, I'm about to make 
absolutely abundantly clear. That's actually how he ends down in verse 37. Now when they heard this, actually 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So he's writing for clarity. He's speaking for clarity. He's speaking for certainty. He's communicating the words of the Spirit to clarify, to clean up what they're confused about, what they're both asking about and both what they're accusing these men and women of, being drunk at nine in the morning. Now, what's important for us to understand and see before we get into what he says is what he's doing. This is remarkable. We've already said this a couple of times, that, that this is the second time Peter has stood up to speak, and in both occasions, he roots his reasoning. He roots everything in the Word of God. And the last time he stood up, it's a justification for why they should replace Judas. And he quotes from the Old Testament, two different texts out of Psalms. In this sermon, from beginning to end, he's rooting his reasoning, he's rooting the gospel in the Bible. And not just any scriptures, the Old Testament. He quotes Joel, he quotes Psalm 16, and he quotes, quotes Psalm 110. Now that's significant for us. It's important for us to see. Not just simply what he says, but what he's doing. Because I know, as well as you do, with family and friends that we all have, that our family, there are many family and friends and coworkers that we work with that, that are suspect of the Bible. They do not believe that the Bible is the, the very word of God, the, the true, true and trustworthy word of God, the authoritative word of God. But I know, even worse than that, there are many Christians that discount the Bible. But that's not how Jesus or Peter or any of the disciples viewed the scriptures. They rooted their reasoning in the Scriptures, specifically in the Old Testament. And they see that these promises in the Old Testament are being fulfilled now in their time. So when we read the Old Testament, we can see promises made. And when we read the New Testament, we can see promises kept. This is the very Word of God. Now, why is all of that so amazing? Who is speaking in this moment? This is... Remarkable because it not only speaks to the message he presents, but the supernatural work of God. This is Peter. This is the brash, quick-to-talk, Galilean fisherman that's later called uneducated, that is spotted because of his accent, that is identified because he can't speak like everybody else. But he's also the one that rushes to judgment, speaks whatever comes across his mind. That's not what is happening here in this text. This is a man changed by God. What's further important and interesting is that this man, remember, denied Jesus three times. And if you remember, when he denied Jesus, on the night that he denied Jesus, he was in the courtyard, outside, could see Jesus being tried inside, and there was a little servant girl that said, you're one of the disciples, aren't you? You're one of the followers of Jesus. You're one of his followers, aren't you? Peter couldn't even stand up to a servant girl and speak. Now he's standing up to the world. Now he's speaking to the multitude and to the nations. And he's not just preaching some happy good news message. He presents the holiness of God and calls them to repent. This is abundantly clear. This is a spirit-inspired, spirit-filled, gospel-transformed individual. This is the work of God. What that tells you and I is he can use us. If he can use this simple man with with flaws and failures in his past and his story, then he can use you and I. 
If he can use this man that's later called uneducated, this man that doesn't speak like everybody else, this man that doesn't, that's so quick and brash, then he can use you and I. He can work through our stories. He can work through our failures. No one is beyond grace. No one is beyond God being able to use their stories of his redemption, of his rescue for his glory. That's good news for you and I. Is that good news for you? That's remarkable good news for all of us. His sins aren't held over his head. This man has been transformed. And as we'll see, that's an important point for us to hold on to. He's been transformed by the gospel, by the good news of the grace of Jesus towards him. This is only seven weeks removed from that moment when he denied Jesus. Seven weeks. That's it. And yet this is the man that God uses to speak and proclaim the gospel to the nations in this moment? No one is beyond grace. There is a possibility for all of us to experience repentance and transformation, restoration, and be used for the glory of God. That is remarkable good news. Let's look at his answer that he gives, the explanation that he gives. Let's get into what he says. And what he says, beginning in verse 16, well, verse 15, really, he, he responds, some have argued, commentators have argued, that with a little bit of irony and, and humor here, these, he's answering the question, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, which means 9 a.m. These men aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That happens later in the day. That doesn't happen at 9 o'clock in the morning. This, these men, you're, you're, he's using common sense. You've just lost your mind if you think these men are drunk. But he doesn't just stop there. He roots his argument in the scriptures. And he says, what you are witnessing was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he quotes this Old Testament prophet. And we need to understand the context of Joel if we're going to understand the points that Peter is making. What we need to understand first and foremost is, is in the Old Testament, the, the prophets, when they were sent, they were sent as messengers for God to proclaim a message that God had given them. Typically, they were assigned they, were, they lived at a certain time period during a certain kingdom, king's rule, uh, d- during the exile, before, before the exile. They lived at a certain season and time, and we know that date and time. It's typically, they were assigned to, a, to, to proclaim a message to a certain people, and we typically know that. With Joel, it, we don't know that. It's not clear who he was sent to. We know he's speaking to the people of God, but we don't know which group. Is it the northern tribe, the southern tribe? Was it before the exile, after the exile? When is it? And we don't know what, why he's proclaiming this message other than the fact what he proclaims. And what does he proclaim? The first thing God speaks through the prophet Joel is he recounts to his people. Remember that locust plague? He's not talking about Egypt. He's talking about a different one sometime in history that was so devastating to your land and to your people. Do you remember that locust plague that, that they, they came in, they devoured, and they devastated the crops and the harvest, and there was disease as a result, and, there was, and it was years. It lasted years and years. Famine was the result of that. Do you remember what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, Joel 1.4? What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten? What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten? What's the point of all these different types of locusts? The devastation was bad. It was complete. It was total. Do you remember that dark day of that plague and those days and years that followed as a result of that? It's terrible. It's, it's horrendous. The text goes on in chapter 1 and recounts the, 
the, the attitude and disposition and the, and the culture and the climate at the time, everything was cut off, laid waste, dried up, torn down, stripped, destroyed, withheld, ruined, devoured, burned, fails, languishes, withers, shrivels. Those are all words from the text. Everything is devastated. Everything is destroyed. Everything is dark. Everything is bleak. What does God do? He points them back to that locust plague to remind them of that dark and devastating day. And he says, do you think that was bad? The answer is clearly yes. And then God announces something far, infinitely far worse is on the horizon. Something infinitely far worse is on the horizon. And what's that thing? It's the terrible day of the Lord. That's shorthand for the day of judgment. The day of God pouring out His holy wrath, just judgment on sin. You thought the locusts were bad? You thought the devastation and famine and destruction and darkness was bad under the locusts when the locusts came? The day of the Lord is on the horizon. That great and terrible day. He says in verse 15, Alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near, and its destruction, as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Two, chapter, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then these words that are extremely relevant to Peter's sermon. Chapter 1, verse 5. Awake, you drunkards. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, and you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. What's going on in Joel? Rather than be alarmed, rather than be terrified, rather than be humbled, rather than be amazed and astounded at the great and terrifying day of the Lord, of His holiness being announced and being pronounced against sin. Rather than that, His people are drunk, inebriated, confused, in a stupor, blind to this great and terrible day. Instead, they're, they're toying with their trinkets, blind to the, what's on the horizon. And he's awakening them, saying, you thought that was bad, something far worse is coming. And what's he inviting them to do? Repent. Humble yourselves before the holy God of the universe, against, uh, before Almighty God. Be ashamed, he says. Weep, wail, mourn, be ashamed, lament, call a fast, call a solemn assembly, assembly. cry out to God for grace and forgiveness. Also, all words in the text. This is the message that God is proclaiming to his people in Joel. And then, in the middle of chapter 2, something amazing, something remarkable, something astounding. We don't just get in Joel the holiness of God. We get also the grace of God. In chapter 2, verse 12 to 13, God invites his people to repent. He says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend 
your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And then this great quote, it comes from Exodus and runs through the entire Old Testament about the nature and the character of who our God is. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Abounding means overabundant and lavish in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. What's God inviting His people to do? He's inviting them to rend their hearts not their garments, to show genuine, true repentance, not simply remorse because of the consequences, not because they've been caught in sin and, oh no, what are you going to do? What are you going to take away? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Not, not, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. I'll deal with it, I'll deal with it. Not not fear for consequences. Instead, what he calls them to do is to be brokenhearted because they have broken the heart of God. He invites them to be wounded at the level of their heart because they have wounded the heart of God. Gospel repentance, true repentance, that's what he's inviting his people to show, to exhibit here. Now, in the rest of Joel chapter 2, we see for those who repent, for those who cry out, who rend their hearts, not their garments, who cry out for God, who cry out for the Lord, who, who hope in him, There are blessings upon blessings, grace upon grace that overflow to them. And that's what the rest of chapter 2 announces. The rest of chapter 2 shows us the remarkable grace for those who repent. Those who repent and cry out to God experience the life they were intended to live with God. Listen to some of the blessings. Verse 25, he promises to restore the years that the swarming locust has eaten. That may be a verse you're familiar with. It's a famous verse. In other words, not just the day of the locust, the years of famine, the years of devastation, the years of drought, the years of darkness, the years of pain and heartache will be restored. That's an extraordinary promise, an extraordinary grace. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on, and he promises that they will eat plenty and be satisfied plenty and be satisfied. In the days of the the locust, they had nothing. They had famine. They had devastation. And now he's saying, you will eat. But not just eat. You will be eat. You'll have plenty and be satisfied. The word literally means to be welled up within and overflowing. You'll have so much excess. You won't even be able to eat all of the excess. You won't even know what to do with all of the excess. That's how blessed you will be. Verse 27, and they will know that I am in their midst, that I dwell within them, within their midst. And that then leads us to verse 28 and 29, down to 32, which is what Peter quotes. That's when God says, In those days, for those who repent, those who lament, those who return, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then what does he say? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men and your old men will see visions and dream dreams. And even my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then what's the greatest blessing of all? Immediately after this, what he says in verse 30 down to 32 is, for those who repent, those who cry out for the Lord, those who hope in Him, those who run to Him, it doesn't change the fact that God's holiness will be poured out against sin. It changes their status and their identity. 
they will be spared. They will be rescued. They will be saved. God's holiness will still be poured out on sin. He will still judge sin and unrighteousness, but they will be spared. In verse 32, there's a call. There's an invitation to call out to God. And the language in the text says that they they will be saved. They will escape. They will be spared. They will be rescued. They will survive. So the, the locust is bad. The holy day of God's judgment is far worse. And it's on the horizon. Repent. Call out to the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. There is no one that can survive the withering weight of his holy wrath. No one. Except for those who call out on the name of the Lord. No one except for those who hope in the Lord. Peter is quoting this verse here, and when he says Lord, Yahweh is the word that's used in Joel. He doesn't use Yahweh. When he uses Lord, he means Jesus. So let's come up for air from Joel for a second, and let's then try to understand what Peter is saying by quoting Joel. Let's remember the context. Verse 13, they ask, they make a, they ask a question, they make a statement. What on earth are we witnessing here? What does this mean? That all of these are speaking in languages, in dialects, and, and I hear the gospel being proclaimed here. What does this mean? These 120 men and women are, are, are proclaiming this. What does this mean? And then the other is the accusation. The accusation, they're just drunk. Peter is responding to both of those, and he's making two points. They're interlocking points. The first is to those who ask, what does this mean? To those who are curious, to those who are, who are, who are dumbfounded and astonished and want to know, what does this mean? And, and what he is saying to them is that what you are witnessing is the fulfillment of God's promises. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back to the Old Testament, in Joel, beyond Joel. But all all of that is being fulfilled in this moment. What you're witnessing is that these men and women are experiencing the promised blessings that come to those who repent and call on the name of the Lord. What you're witnessing in these 120 and their lips being opened and they're proclaiming the gospel and being blessed and being, and being filled with the full presence of the living God of the universe, you're witnessing these men and women are experiencing the promised blessings to those who repent and call on the name of the Lord. That's what you're witnessing. Now, why? That's shocking, okay? That, that's amazing. But why is it so amazing what Joel says? We want to let the context speak to the context and the context speak to us. Peter to Joel, Joel, Peter, us, right? So Joel, what's the context? Why on earth is it so amazing that he says, God says, I will pour out my my spirit on all flesh. And then he says, men and women. And then he says, old and young. And then he says, servants and landowners. Why is that so amazing? Because in the Old Testament, the spirit was only given to a limited few and most of the time for a limited time. It was only poured out, only given to prophets, priests, and kings, and typically only for a limited time. It was only temporary. You could look back in the Old Testament. We could look at Bezalel and 
Jephthah and Samson. We could look at Numbers 11, 25, and there Moses is full of the Spirit, full of the presence of God, and God says to Moses, for the fulfillment of the task that I've assigned you, I'm going to take some of the Spirit off of you and put it on the 70 elders of Israel. And then it says, and they prophesied, but they did not continue to. So it was temporary. It was a limited time frame. What's also amazing is that most of them went into the temple and prophesied, but two of them went into the camp among the people, among the commoners, among those that were outside the temple. And it so shocks and alarms Joshua. He's like, Moses, you got to tell them to stop. They can't do that. And Moses said something amazing. He says, why would we stop this? Oh, that all of God's people would receive his full blessing and full presence and prophecy, speak on his behalf. Oh, that all of God's people would know him intimately like I have known him intimately, the mediator. Moses is longing for a day when all of God's people would know him, know God, as intimately as Moses has known him, face to face, the full presence of God. He longs for that day. Joel is promising that that day will come for all who repent and hope or call on the name of the Lord. Peter is saying that day has come, and that day is here for you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no limit to who can receive the gospel. There is no limit to who can receive the the good news of the grace, of salvation, of rescue, of redemption. There's no limit to who the Holy Spirit will fill. It is for all who call on the name of the Lord. And how is it that they experience it? How is it that these men and women are experiencing this? Because they've hoped in the true prophet, the true priest, the true King Jesus, who died on our behalf, who raised from the grave on our behalf, who is exalted at the right hand of the Father, and at the right hand of the Father bestows the Spirit. He promised He would, and He is sending His blessings on His people. That's the, that's the first point Peter is making. That, that the gospel is available to all who will call, all who will repent, all who will call on the name of the Lord. And there's no limits to who can receive this. Every man, woman, child, old or young, rich or poor, then and now. But there's a second interrelated point that Peter is making. And it is an extraordinary rebuke. It's an extraordinary rebuke. But even in that, it's also a sweet sweet invitation. So the second point that he's making is to this second audience that the first audience asked, what does this mean? The second audience stood there mocking, it says, and they are filled and they, they accuse them of being drunk. That's the second audience and second point that he's making. Remember, pouring, the pouring out of the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit was promised in the Old Testament, in Joel, in multiple other places. When the, when the Spirit is poured out, when, when, men and women, young and old, all of them will begin. This is a, a mark of the, the, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, the mark of what the Messiah promised he would give. He would give his presence. He would come to rescue his people. But remember, the Messiah was also going to come and judge the enemies of God. So if the Spirit has been poured out, it will not be long until He pours out His judgment. So what is Peter saying here in this moment? These men and women are not drunk. These men and women are not inebriated. They're not, 
They're not blind. They're not shoving off truth. They're as sober as sober can be. They see things clearly. They see the weight of their sin. They see the enormity of their sin, and they see the immensity of God's love for them in Christ Jesus. These men and women are not drunk. You are drunk. You are the ones that are blind. You are the ones that are inebriated. You are the ones that don't see clearly. You are the ones that are blind to the reality of your sin and the judgment of God and His holiness towards sin and the hope of the gospel presented to you. In fact, you have shoved off Jesus. You have pushed Him away. All the evidence has been presented to you. And that's where Peter goes in the rest of the text and the rest of the sermon. The very next thing is, don't you see? God sent Jesus in the flesh. God in the flesh. He sent Jesus. God put him forward. You crucified him. God raised him up from the dead. God exalted him at the right hand of the Father. God has done all of this work. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah that you've longed for and hoped for. He is the answer. And you crucified him. That's not an anti-Semitic statement, which many have accused Peter of being here, which is ironic because he's a Jew. This is not an anti-Semitic statement. This is a statement directed at their heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit. All the evidence in the world has been presented to you, but you, like a drunkard, have shoved him away. And Peter here, and these disciples here, these 120 are proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And here are men and women mocking it, calling them drunk. I don't know if you've ever dealt with, with an alcoholic. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a drunkard. I don't know if you've ever had to pick someone up off of the porch and try to help them up. And what you're trying to do is help them, trying to care for them, trying to get them inside, trying to get them to bed, trying to take care of them. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it. When you try to help a drunk, sometimes that drunk will turn on you. They're blind to the reality that you're the one there trying to care for them. And they'll push you away. And they'll turn on you. And the what's worse and terrible inside of them comes out in their words and they attack you. I've done that. My mom was an alcoholic. I've picked her up off of the porch. I've tried to carry her inside, and she has turned on me. These men and women are turning on the hope of the gospel being presented to them. They're shoving away the ones who have come to help them, the one who came to save them. That's what they're doing in this moment. And that's why Peter moves on to this third point. If he only stopped there, we only have one half of the gospel. Another big point he's making in this is the hope of the gospel. He doesn't just present one half. The gospel is two halves of, of one coin. One half is the holiness of God towards our sin. We are so sinful, someone had to die. But there's another half of the gospel. We're so loved, someone wanted to, volunteered to, desired to die, bleed, and die for you and I. There's someone who volunteered for the job, and his name is Jesus. And that's what Peter moves to. He moves not strictly to the holiness, doesn't just present the holiness. You're a sinner. You're the drunk. He says there's hope for you. There's hope for you, which is what true repentance is. He doesn't just say, repent. Repentance means to turn. 
to turn from the wall of our sin, to turn our, put, move our ladder that's leaning against the wall of self and, and self-effort and self-everything and move it and turn to something, turn to Jesus, the only one who can rescue, the only one who can, who can heal, who can forgive. And that's why Peter moves to the rest of the quote that he moves to in Joel, and he lands where he does. In the rest of the quote, I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on, on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, the day of judgment will come. There is no one who can stand under the withering weight of the holiness of God except for Jesus. Only his shoulders are broad enough and strong enough to bear the weight of the holiness of God being poured out. And that's what Peter calls them to. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, rescued, escaped, survive. That's what he's inviting them to. That's what he's inviting you and I to. He is issuing a strong rebuke and a strong warning but it's also the most intimate, sweetest invitation to everyone, every person, every man or woman, old or young, rich or poor, to call on the name of the Lord, to call on Jesus, to hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is our only hope of salvation. He's the only one that can stand up under the weight of God's holiness. No one can endure it except for Jesus. And when Again, Peter it says, Lord, here, he is talking about Jesus. And that's why his message is so powerful. When he says, don't you see the evidence? Don't you see that God sent Jesus, that God put forward Jesus, that God raised Jesus, that God exalted Jesus? Don't you see? Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, your only hope, and you killed him. That's what he says in verse 36. And that leads us to their response in verse 37. They are cut to the heart. They are pierced through to the heart. The text literally reads, if it, the original language, it literally cut means pierced. They are pierced to the heart. By what? The fact that they finally see that their sins pierce the heart of Jesus. They see that, that they, are, they are wounded to the heart because they have wounded the very heart of God. They see finally the face of Jesus. And in the face of Jesus, the bloody, wounded face of Jesus, they see their sin, the sinfulness of their sin, the weightiness of their sin, the enormity of their sin. And they are crushed. They are melted. They are heartfelt sorrow. They feel heartfelt sorrow in this moment. What we're witnessing is Joel 2.13. They are rending their hearts in this moment, not their garments. In Joel 2.13, it says, rend your hearts. Rend means tear. We know what that looks like, to tear like a shirt or, or fabric, to tear it. Rend can also mean to pierce through and cut. They are, their hearts are pierced in this moment. And why? Because they realize that they have pierced the heart of God. This is the promise, the fulfillment of the promise of Zechariah 12.10. In Zechariah 12, 10, that, that prophet, God speaks to that prophet, and he promises, there will be a day when I will pour out my spirit, my, a spirit of grace. It's a disposition and attitude among the people, and they will cry out for mercy. They will beg for mercy. Why would we beg for mercy? 
Because on that day, we will see clearly what we have done. We crucified Jesus. My sins crucified Jesus. It will be personalized. And there will be such weeping and such bitterness, such deep-seated, sorrow-filled hurt that they will cry out for mercy. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps for a firstborn. The language of weeping over an only child and a firstborn is, is weeping over the... the the depth and feeling and crushing feeling of losing a child. They will feel that weight. That's what God is saying here. They will feel the weight of me, Yahweh, losing my only son, my firstborn son. That is extraordinary. What we're witnessing in this text are these people experiencing what God promised he would pour out. He would soften hearts to such a degree they would see their, the sinfulness of their sins. They'll understand they haven't just broken rules, they have broken God's heart. What we're witnessing in this text is the difference between religious repentance and gospel repentance. Religious repentance, it, it looks like remorse. It, it, it says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. My bad. Or, or it looks like resolve. I'll fix it. I'll, I'll, I'll do better. I'll, I'll solve it. It looks like your child when you catch them in trouble. It looks like my five-year-old. She's not sorry for the... For, she's only worried about the consequences. She's not sorry that she just crushed her little sister. She's not sorry that she crushed the heart of her father. She's only concerned with the consequences. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I caught. Don't take that away. Don't, don't, don't. I don't want to miss. I'm sorry. That's how she... That's religious repentance. It's, it's far more, it's self-centered and it's only concerned with the consequences. It's only concerned with self. But gospel repentance is radically different and we see it dripping from every page in the scriptures. Gospel repentance begins with recognizing my sin has not just broken a law, it's not just going to experience consequences, my sin has wounded the very heart of God. That's the beginning point of gospel repentance. It's seeing Jesus on the cross, bloody, wounded, beaten, bleeding, and that's for me. My heart pierced him. That's what gospel repentance begins with. You can see it in Genesis 39.9. When Joseph, before he sins, before he, he does anything, he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, and he says, far be it for me to sleep with you, far be it for me to do this, to sin, to do this wickedness against God. He sees his sin as against God, not against her, not against Potiphar's wife. It's against God. He sees his sin rightly. It would wound the Father for me to do this. It would wound his heart for me to do this. This is what, be, uh, what David said in, in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that, so that, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I am the sinner that you say that I am. I am the sinner that the scriptures say that I am. I am that one who's betrayed you. I am the one who's, be 
who's wounded your heart. My sins have pierced your heart. I've wounded you and I stand condemned. You are justified and right to condemn me. And that leads David to cry out, to plea. It's what Paul calls godly grief versus worldly grief. Vertical grief versus horizontal grief. This is, it begins with recognizing that our wounds, our sin, have wounded the heart of God. It moves to recognizing that gospel, gospel repentance is heart deep, not simply skin deep. It's, not, it's internal, not external. It's not an outward show of emotions. Look at how sinful I am, God. Can I get you on my side? Look at how sorry I am. Please don't take that away. It's, that's external. That's show. That's rending the garments. That's outward religious performance. What God calls for, he did it in Joel, he, we see it in the scriptures, is inward recognition. No, no, no. It's not just my outward performance. It's my inward heart. I need a new heart. I need rescue and redemption. I'm sinful at the deepest levels of who I am. This is what David says in Psalm 51, 1 to 2. Certainly admits that he's outwardly unclean, but he doesn't stay there. In verse 10, he begs God to cleanse his heart. And then in verse 17, he says, it's not a show of emotional, it's a showy emotional spirit that God is after, but a broken spirit and contrite that God seeks. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It's those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy that he's after and that experience the kingdom of God. Not those who show, make a show of it. It's those who recognize it at the heartfelt level. It's what Joel says in 2.13. And that leads to our understanding that gospel repentance involves turning from something to something, namely from sin to Jesus. Again, Peter doesn't just present, hey, you're a bunch of sinners. Done. He doesn't stop there. He says, yes, we are all sinners. Yes, you have rebelled against God. Yes, you are the drunk, the blind, the, the one who's inebriated. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, call on the name of the Lord. That's the, the call throughout the scriptures. It's in, it's in Jesus' first message in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, repent. That's the first thing he says. Why? Because you've been playing king too long. The true king is here. Submit. But he doesn't stop there. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. You are so sinful, so arrogant, so full of yourself, such a glory hog that you think you are God. Humble yourself and hope in the only true God who laid his life down for you. That's what Jesus is announcing in Mark 1.15. It's throughout. It's in, in Stephen's sermon in Acts 3. It's in Paul's sermon in Acts 20. And, and it's here in this text. After they are cut to the heart in this text, they, they don't just... Oh, we're sorry. What must we do? It leads to something. It's, it's, we know we're the sinners that you're, you're telling us that we are. We acknowledge that. What must we do? What is our only hope? What's our rescue? And Peter announces, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, turn from, and then he says baptize. And baptize in, 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 is, is an outward expression of an inward faith commitment. It's an inward identity of what confession, outward expression of an inward confession of what I 
have done. I am not the Savior, but Jesus is, and I identify with him. I am in union with him, and just like he died, I want to die, and just like he rose, I will rise with him. That's faith. Repent and believe. And what's the, what's the gift? What's the blessing? What's the promise? Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2, Peter's whole point. Do you want to know the very presence of the living God? Repent. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. And then recognize that gospel repentance bears fruit. It displays itself. It exhibits itself. It, 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 go, it moves from something that's inward, outward. This is what Acts 26, 20 says. There's deeds, there's fruit, there's evidences. Luke 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In Joel, it's fasting, weeping, mourning. In, in Ephesians and Colossians, it's putting off sin and putting on Christ. This, friends, is the secret of the Christian life. Those of you that are struggling those of you that are worried, those of you that are anxious, those of you that are inundated and, and, and feel powerless in the Christian life, it's, it's never graduating from this truth. Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg doors, the church at Wittenberg, the first one said that the Lord expects or wishes that all of life would be a life of repentance. How can we have a, a life of repentance? See, what we think is repentance is just that that initial moment, hope in the gospel, we're saved, we graduate, we move on, we got the diploma, and now we figure it out on our own. That's not the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. Therefore, we never graduate from repentance, meaning we never graduate from staring at the face of Jesus. Never look away from the face of Jesus, the wounded, bloody face of Jesus that says, you are a sinner, humble yourself. But it also says, as the great and glorious sinner that you are, come to the greater Savior that you have. That's the gospel. So we live a life. How do I serve? How do I forgive? How do I, am I patient with, with, with anyone and, and everyone? How do I do this? Only by looking to how much he's forgiven me, how patient he is with me, how caring, loving, kind he is with me, and never graduating from that. And as we end, who better to present this message who better the, to, to present this on this day at Pentecost than Peter? Remember, the gospel writers recount Peter's betrayal, and they all say that he, he did it three times. They all acknowledge it, but only Luke. Only Luke says in Luke chapter 22 that, that on the third occasion when he denies Jesus to that little servant girl, it says, with that, the Lord turned and looked at Peter stared him in the eyes. And what did Peter see? He saw the beaten, bloody, bruised face of Jesus. And the text says that he went out and wept bitterly. He was crushed because he realized that his sins crushed the Savior. He was pierced because he realized his sins pierced the Savior. He was wounded because he realized he wounded the heart of God. This is the man that, that that recognized that saw in the face of Jesus the weightiness of his sin. And he went away, and but what does he experience? On the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is standing there making a fire, cooking some me a meal, and he calls Peter to come to him. And what does he see? He sees the smile of Jesus. Jesus 
comes to him. Peter repents. Peter is restored. Peter is rescued. And now Peter stands seven weeks later on this day, proclaiming to the masses this good news of the gospel to all. And it's because he experienced it. He lived it. It's not just information to Peter. It's his life. It's his story. Is it yours? Is it mine? Are we people asking, what does this mean? What must I do? Are we people pushing off the truths of the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ? This is what it means to live a life staring at the face of Jesus. To see in his face the gravity of our sins. The enormity and the weightiness of God's holiness. But then as we stare, as we continue to stare, we move from seeing the weightiness of our sins to seeing the smile of God towards us. And that's when it moves from weeping and lamenting to joy. It's only when we see our sins in the face of Jesus that we can ever move to seeing the smile of God towards our souls. Have you done that? Have you experienced that? And it's only fitting that we come to the table today and that we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper, we celebrate with the juice, and we have here a cup of wine. With the wine, we celebrate what Jesus said, this is my new covenant in my blood. These men and women are not drunk on wine. They've drank deeply of the new covenant of Jesus' blood. On this day, we celebrate the, the broken bread and the poured out wine, remembering that our sins required someone to die, someone to be broken, someone to be pierced, someone to bleed, blood to be shed. But we also celebrate because someone was willing to do that. Jesus did that on our behalf. So when we come to the table, we remember the weightiness of our sin and we celebrate the grace of God towards us in Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and then invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the the gift of your word that's so deep and so intricate and so beautiful. I just pray that I did not bury the lead. Holy Spirit, you are the one that takes your word and like fire melts our hearts. And like a hammer, Jeremiah says, crack open rock hard hearts. You are the one that makes us feel like we're on fire when the Spirit is speaking, when the Word is being proclaimed. I pray that that's true today. I pray that we would be like the disciples on the road to Emmaus and say, did not our hearts burn within us as He unpacked the Scriptures to us? And I pray that that melting and that wounding would not lead us to despair, but would lead us to hope to hope in the gospel, to hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. And then it would loosen our lips and loosen our lives to proclaim that to the nations. That every man, woman, and child can be saved, rescued, those who call on the name of Jesus. The gospel is available to all, offered to all. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that is yet to be cut to the heart, maybe today is the first time they were cut to the heart, I pray they'd not waste a single moment in repenting and believing and making it public through confession, through baptism. 
And I pray that we would one day experience a little foretaste, a little glimpse, maybe even today, of the 3,000 added to their number that day. All for your glory, all for your name, all for your sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.